0: Because what's 500k today worth is not going to be 500k worth in five years' time, it's probably going to grow. And if you are saving towards a 500k house, you will never catch it. And so we allow people to grow their wealth while they are waiting to buy their own house. And if you have your own house, then you are investing and growing your wealth.
1: Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, editor-in-chief of Base Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? If you live in Toronto or have met someone from here, there are three topics that especially bond us together as a community weather, construction, and real estate. They're the holy trinity of small talk here, and very likely the city that you're listening from as well. On today's episode, we're talking about the latter real estate. When it comes to the subject, everyone has an opinion on the matter. To buy or not to buy, Invest now or wait for the bubble to burst. Rent or own. And let's not even get started about these interest rates. One thing that remains largely unanimous is the increasing difficulty of being able to tap into the market, to get your foot into the door and assume the mantle of property owner. That's where today's guest, Kushbuja, comes in. The CEO of Toronto-based tech startup Buy Properly, Kushbu and her team are revolutionizing the real estate landscape by democratizing access to ownership. Through a model known as fractional investing, real estate investors can buy into properties in a way similar to buying shares or stocks of a company. Except that company in this case might be a one-bedroom condo in Toronto or a multi-residential complex in Houston. In the very first installment of our Mission Critical Live event series, I spoke with Kushbu at Toronto's Clio Social Club in front of an intimate crowd of entrepreneurs and leaders about leveraging the power of technology to solve problems, fractional investing in real estate, and how Canadians can get started on their home ownership journey. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Kush Buja, who is the CEO of Buy Properly, which is a, um, a startup that focuses on fractional investing in the real estate sector which is very interesting obviously if you're from Toronto or know someone from Toronto you know you'll be very familiar with the fact that the things that we love to talk about the most are uh, three things it's traffic, construction and real estate it's like the holy trinity of small talk so today we're here to talk about the latter which is real estate but welcome Kushbu. Thank you so I want to dive right into the meat of things because it's a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. If you could distill your company into your company ethos into an elevator pitch, what would that be?
0: Well, our job is to democratize real estate investing. Right now, real estate is not accessible to regular people, um, including myself. And our job is to make that, one, accessible, and two, easy. Because real estate is not just expensive, it's intimidating to most people. Stressful process, it's lots of money, lots of legal, tax. And so our platform provides a frictionless way of investing in real estate just as you would invest in stocks. Nobody is stressed about buying Amazon stock or Google stock (laughs) and they shouldn't be stressed about it. So they shouldn't be stressed about real estate either.
1: So through Buy Properly, what are the problems that you're really looking to solve or address, especially given the real estate landscape as it is today?
0: The biggest problem is access uh, to real estate. Uh, if you're in Toronto, you know that even a one bedroom costs like maybe $500,000. That's a lot of down payment given that the average Canadian salary is at around 100k. You're talking about years of saving before you can do anything with real estate. Buy, own, invest, it's just way out of reach. And so that's one of the biggest problems you want to solve is provide people access um, for today and for future. Because even when you are saving up towards your house, which for example, when I was buying my house, I was saving up for years, you would just let that cash sit in the bank or nothing till we were accumulating enough to buy a house and be ready for a down payment. But right now we, for example, have customers on the platform who are looking to buy a house maybe five years from now. Some of them have not decided whether it's Toronto or another city they will be in they can start growing their cash rather than letting it sit in the bank and earn nothing. So they grow their cash, so they're, they're not catching a moving train. Because what's 500K today worth is not going to be 500K worth in five years time, it's probably going to grow. And if you are saving towards a 500K house, you will never catch it. And so we allow people to grow their wealth while they are waiting to buy their own house. And if you have your own house, then you are investing and growing your wealth. I mean, something that large institutions, family offices, high net worth individuals do all the time is regular investing. But for regular retail people who have a standard job and a salary, often all you have is a GIC at best. Um, Banks give you like 0.5%, 1% interest rate. And you have the stock market, which is volatile. Mm-hmm. So we are an alternative to those options. Um, regular real estate, of course, means your money is stuck till you sell it, so it's a long haul. But our platform is liquid, almost liquid, uh, and so you can buy and sell the shares if you wanted to exit.
1: That's that's super interesting. And if we can rewind a little bit, what really inspired you to build a business like Buy Properly? What led you to that moment where you wanted to kind of pursue that path of entrepreneurship within the respect of of the company that you are leading today?
0: Um, I guess I was just unhappy with the whole real estate space myself. (laughs) I used to work at Amazon, very far from real estate or construction or development or any of those things. Standard tech person earning half my salary in cash and half of it in stocks, which means I was invested in stocks but when I wanted to invest my savings outside of stocks, there were no options. So I'm a big saver. I can save even with a student's stipend. Um, If I had 20, 30, 40 grand left at the end of the year, I couldn't do much with it except put the money in stocks again. And real estate is the obvious thing to diversify away from stocks. So people invest in real estate, uh, all the top funds in the world invest in real estate, almost 30 to 50% of a Yale endowment or a Penn or a Harvard endowment is towards real estate. But then regular people just can't access it. And when I went through my own purchase of my principal residence, it was a lot of saving and catching up. Very expensive. And then the experience was not fun. Like it was the biggest purchase. It was like, okay, you're going to charge me a million dollars and then give me service which is worse than a $30 purchase. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of made me think that maybe I don't know something that others do. Maybe there's a better way of doing or being part of real estate altogether. And I started looking for solutions and there wasn't anything. It was like, okay, if there's nothing in Canada, maybe there's something in UK and in the US and elsewhere. And made me dig all of the models of investing in real estate. And I realized most setups service people with a lot of money but not average people and then i thought okay uh, if i work at amazon build tech solutions all the time maybe i get into it solve for it if there's no solution and not like that was it and i jumped in i did test it out uh, whether it was just my problem or or a common problem and so we set up a booth at collision conference which is a tech conference with the idea um, we only had a GoDaddy page at that time and in the day like we couldn't take a washroom break because everybody wanted in on this everybody at the conference said send me the deals I'm interested uh, and so on and we realized that it's not just my problem uh, it's a very very common problem it's expensive intimidating stressful process um, and if you bought one, then you have to manage it. And if you're a regular person with job and family and kids, you have no time to manage real estate. So at every point of it, there was so much friction that it was worth the solution.
1: Real estate is definitely intimidating, stressful, all these different things. Um, but when we talk about fractional investing, it's kind of, it's unfamiliar. It is a little nebulous. And this is something that I'm gonna bring up quite a bit during this interview. So what exactly, if you could distill it and define it, is fractional investing, and also, um, you know, what's really the value proposition at the end of the day?
0: Sure. So fractional investing is when you are investing in a share of the overall asset. So you can buy a share of Amazon. Similarly, you can buy a share of a house. And it could be a single, uh, single-family detached house in Hamilton. And it may be worth 600K, but you don't have to dole out the entire amount. You are only putting in three grand because that's what you can afford and you own a share. So that's fractional investing. Fractional in itself is not a new concept, it just happens at a much larger scale. So large institutions would own an entire toll road, and the minimum tag might be $50 million. But fractional investing for regular people isn't available is just available for very large check sizes. And so our job using tech and AI and simplicity is to make it available to regular people. So you basically uh, own small share of house. And if you're thinking operationally, we are effectively creating a similar structure as an Amazon or a Google would have, which is each house becomes its own company and you buy shares of that company. All that company does is owns the house, rents it out, the rental income that's generated gets distributed quarterly to people who have invested in it. And when the house sells, you get a share of the exit price.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when you talk about the technology that Buy Properly has invested in building as a foundation of the platform, what, what is that technology? How do you harness the technology and use something like artificial intelligence to, to really make an impact in the real estate sector?
0: Absolutely, I mean, there's a reason why the large firms are not doing this or not servicing the small check sizes. It's just a hard problem. And if you did things the way they are done today, you cannot service a 500, 2000, $3,000 check, you cannot. The costs are humongous, which means if you have to service regular people with smaller check sizes, you have to do things differently and reduce costs in the value chain. And that's where tech comes in. So tech in itself is not the solution. Tech is making it one, simpler, and two, um, making the costs lower so that we can actually sustainably service customers. That's where something like AI comes in. Again, remember, tech is always a tool. So how does AI help us? We use a lot of sales data, Google Places data, macroeconomic data, GDP, income, supply, everything out there basically, including computer vision, which tells us whether a house is renovated or not, et cetera. But the way AI helps us is we don't hire an army of investment bankers and agents to evaluate houses. Instead, we leverage our AI and our data analyses to say, okay, where should we putting our money? Where are the assets or properties that have good fundamentals that will always give return, downturn or not? And that's how we use AI, which reduces the cost of sourcing a deal or an asset or a property. And in the same way, we use a lot of automation throughout the entire process. So everything from knowing your customer, getting to know people's information, signing, all of that automation helps reduce cost at each stage allowing us to better serve smaller check sizes and everybody basically
1: Mm -hmm. and do you find that you know companies like buy properly and other startups are they complementary to other players in the real estate industry or more of a, a, a competitive factor in in the landscape? Do you guys work with, or would people consider you a competition, I suppose?
0: Uh, In the long run, they should. In the uh, short run, probably not. And at the end of the day, in any industry, it's an ecosystem. Uh, We aren't really working against a player. Mm -hmm. We're trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved. There was all of these decades to solve this problem for all of the players out there they chose to not work on solving this hard problem. It's a hard problem. Uh, There is legal. You have to ensure people's money is not lost. You you have to ensure it's compliant Mm -hmm. and yet keep costs low. So it's a hard problem. When I say we work with the ecosystem, when we bring deals, we obviously would work with asset managers and private equity firms and developers. And as you can imagine, as a startup, obviously two years ago when we started, they didn't care about us. They're like, yeah, whatever. Come to us when you grow up. They didn't need us, but now they are also acknowledging the value of all of these investors that they would want to be part of their projects. So over time, the ecosystem is acknowledging that what we are doing is solving a problem that exists. It's not only automating stuff for us, but helping everyone reduce their own costs. Because if you're not using automation, most likely your costs are higher than ours. So, it isn't about us versus them. It's a new tech, and the more people adopt it, the better it is for everyone. In the short run, not competitors.
1: What has your experience been like getting people on board with? Your mission getting people on board with even from like an educational standpoint of understanding this alternative way to investing in real estate that people have not been used to do you find that people have a knee-jerk reaction to when you explain what fractional investing is or has it been a pretty easy thing to convince people to to get into
0: it is any new any change is not easy this is a behavioral change. When people think of real estate, they think of buying a whole house. Nobody thinks of putting up 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 towards a house that they don't necessarily own the whole of. That is a new concept. So obviously there is a little bit of education involved to make sure they understand how it's being de-risked. The second part of it is this product is being brought to the market by a startup. So the next question is, okay, what happens if you guys don't succeed. 99% of the startups fail. So what happens to my money if you guys go bust? Mm -hmm. So we've built in those checks and balances to say, hey, nothing happens to your money or investment. Your money is in a separate entity. It never hits our bank accounts or is not connected to our success. All you will lose is maybe the platform access or the dashboard or the fancy app, but nothing happens to the investment. And so there's education involved in just understanding the new concept. Anything new is always feels risky, even when it is not. So educating the risk mitigation. Um, but what we've noticed is it's usually difficult the first time. So we have a really high stickiness. So once people have invested with us, they just keep coming back and investing. Like we have people who have done seven deals, eight deals, like literally after they have invested in our platform once, they've invested in every deal that has come after. So the first time, it's obviously new and takes a little bit of education and awareness. But then people are like, yeah, OK, it's kind of like well simple. I can go on and put some money and yeah, it makes sense. And I can see the documents are in place and the documents are done by Faskin and, and so on. And we file with the Securities Commission. So the government knows what we are doing. They They keep a tab on us, they have the list of investors. So over time, that credibility has been building Mm. uh, bit by bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. So um, how exactly does it work on a granular level? If I was to go on the website or the app tonight, what would that look like from logging onto my computer to investing?
0: Uh, It's super straightforward. You go create your account, Then we will ask you a zillion questions because by regulatory requirements, we are supposed to make sure we understand your risk, uh, your incomes, etc. So we collect all of the profile information about you and you choose a property, click invest and check out. You enter what you want to invest and you check out. That's it. In the background, of course, we will run the KYC to make sure you are who you claim you are. we will also run a bunch of suitability checks to make sure you are investing in line with what you should be and not taking on too much risk. So adjusting for, um, based on your profile, how much risk is okay for you. And we'll flag if anything is off, but that's it. You create your profile, click invest, put the amount you want to invest and check out. Uh, legal documents would appear in the flow. sign. you're done.
1: So you coll- if you're investing in a property, you can collect uh, on rent that's collected or when a property sells, who gets to make the decision in terms of how much rent is charged or how much a property is sold for?
0: So how much rent a char- is charged or how much property, they're both usually function of what the market would allow us for. We are responsible for the management of that asset. So our job is to ensure that we get the maximum returns, which means we will try and get the best rents possible, keep lowest vacancies possible, and try to optimize for sale exit returns as well. So we would, we of course have a bunch of algorithms and um, and predicting models that we use uh, to make sure we are making objective decisions rather than I feel like selling kind of decisions. Mm. For example, right now, If you ask half my team, they're like, oh my God, the market's going down, maybe we should sell. But if you look at the numbers, no, we shouldn't. It's okay, we hold on. We are in this for five years and it is making money. So in the five years, it is better to hold on. So that's how we decide.
1: And I think like, you know, really the big question is how can people make money as as users, whether it's, you know, a passive side hustle or if it's someone looking to invest, as an investor, where am I really setting my expectations in terms of what I can expect for a return on investment? Is it just as the real estate industry kind of fluctuates, what, what's to prevent me from, from investing elsewhere
0: I suppose? The returns would have a market component, obviously, as is the case with any real estate, but it will also have asset-specific component. So um, what is the location, the quality of the asset? uh, Did we do any capital overlay? So for example, one of our goals as a conscious citizen is to ensure that properties that we bring in, we do some capital upgrades, primarily focused on making it greener. So it becomes more energy efficient Uh, In the Pfizer, five years of hold, usually that cost is recovered because we will save on energy costs. But then that also increases the value of the house because it is more sustainable. And so the returns are determined by those factors, asset-specific and market-specific. The actual numbers will vary from deal to deal. So there is no guarantee that we will always give a 20% or a 15%. So there is, of course, that component. As an investor, I guess what somebody should look at when investing is um, what are the fundamentals? And we try and highlight that uh, ourselves, both in our education and property by property, to say, what are the risks in this? Uh, What are the variables? So if we are saying there's a rent, well, there's a risk that there can be vacancy. And we usually will assume a certain vacancy but it could be more, maybe it's COVID time, it's a little more, a little less rent. So those are the things that we would highlight and we would want people to look at in terms of fundamentals.
1: Um, now, you know, obviously when times are good, things are great. And I assume if you can make money, there's also the risk of being able to lose money possibly as well. So what are really the risks that need to be considered for a model like this?
0: It's not any different from maybe investing in the stock market. You need to make sure you are diversified. You need to make sure you're not always trying to time the market because the, the standard wisdom in the stock market is you do dollar uh, cost averaging, which means you invest a small amount on a more regular basis rather than time the market. So you'll make more money on some, less money on some, but overall you'll do okay. And the same applies to this, except in non-fractional real estate, you cannot be investing 5,000 every month. There's no way to buy that. But in fractional investing, you can execute that. And I think that's probably the best way to think about investing in something like this. There will be market ups and downs. Real estate is also cyclical, like the stock market, except it is a 20-year cycle, so people forget but it is cyclical as long as the and the same logic as would apply in investing applies to real estate if the fundamentals are strong if it is a good house in a good location in the long run if you are holding it it would be okay it will be in the money you will not lose money so fundamentals are important just like in stocks rather than trying to time the market or as one of my finance professors used to say um, the greater fools theory where you buy, even though you know it's expensive, assuming there'll be a greater fool who will pay even more for it. Mm. Focus more on fundamentals and if the fundamentals are OK, they will be OK. Um, a lot of the uh, reason why Toronto sees so much increase in prices isn't, well, there's a little bit of greater fool theory, but, but there is also just the supply demand mismatch, which is real. Um, and so on the macroeconomic level, there is a shortage. There is a dearth of uh, number of units, which is causing this increase, which is why I feel like overall, um, some of these investments will stay above water in the long run. Mm-hmm. But I can't buy a shabby house and assume that I bought it for 600 and somebody will pay a million just because the market's going up. Right. That wouldn't be the right way
1: managing expectations. Yeah. Um, is there a, a minimum investment or a maximum that uh, works within the framework? And if so, why have you set them at, at those levels? Uh,
0: typically, our minimum is 2500 although for the first time investors, we usually let them test waters at $500. Uh, the reason we chose 2500 as a minimum is it is in the, I mean, if you're actually investing and now you're hoping to make some gains, you put in 10 bucks, even if I double the money, you'll have 20 bucks. Yeah, you'll buy four coffees. It doesn't make any substantial impact. So we wanted to arrive at a number that at least had some impact. And we did a bunch of market research, of course, and we arrived at 2,500 as that stable number. But again, um, we've discovered through customer feedback that a lot of people first time, especially, Aren't comfortable risking twenty five hundred if they're trying out a new app or a new company or a new product. Um, most people are comfortable four five at four five hundred level. They're like, okay, even if I lose all my money, it's only five hundred bucks. Mm. And so, for starters, we let first time investors try at five hundred. We've usually seen that it's only the first investment, and like maybe in a week they'll come back and do more.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the sweet spot is around five hundred. Yes. 500. yes. Um, And is there a max in terms of, in in one investment or one transaction?
0: We would typically not let one investor hold more than 50% because then they may try and over influence or try Mm. and call shots, even though uh, legally we make sure those scenarios don't arise, but we wouldn't want those scenarios to arise where one large investor is trying to overtake the whole thing.
1: And in terms of, you know, Holding your shares within a certain property, you can wait until that property is sold, or can you sell your shares beforehand? How does that work, and and where are you, or who are you, who are you selling them to?
0: Yeah, so you can hold it for five years, or typically it's five years, but some projects can be shorter or longer, uh, or you can exit through sale. Uh, so you can because these are shares, of course. The intent is to make it like a Stock exchange. So you can actually list your shares for sale on the platform. When you do, it is available to everybody who comes online onto the platform, and you're effectively selling to other customers or buyers. So it is possible somebody bought a uh, share in a condo in Oakville in 2020, which was the COVID year. We bought it for a really low price. I'm so happy. And they may decide that after holding it for two years, the, they want to just exit and use that cash towards something else. So they sell to somebody else, but somebody else is like, hey, Oakville is still hot and I don't mind owning some shares in Oakville or I live in Oakville and I don't mind holding some shares in my neighborhood condo. And they buy it from the shares. So yeah. it's a proper marketplace.
1: And when you're selling your shares as an investor does how does buy properly operate as a business how do you you guys make money (laughs) like do you take are you acting or do you take a commission or is there a service fee how do you build your business
0: so we charge a management fee pretty much on the lines of what mutual funds or the wealth industry does Uh, we charge two and a half percent of the investment it's an annual recurring fee for properties that we are actively managing, which means these are properties that we are renting out, managing repairs, maintenance, all of that stuff. So we would charge 2.5% every year. Uh, for properties or deals where it's a development project, which means we are not actively doing something every day and every year. We would charge a one-time sourcing fee only because that's the fee for us getting that deal in place. Right. And that's how we make money
1: obviously right now we're in like a really interesting dynamic time for real estate, especially as interest rates have changed so quickly and so fast. When it comes to, from your experience um, operating in the sector, what do you think is an ideal time to utilize a model like fractional investing? Um, Is it when things are low, things are high? When's the best time to use a model like that?
0: Well, right now, times are interesting for everything. The stock market is down, crypto is going crazy. And so like, if you compare those to real estate, real estate isn't doing that bad, right? If you compare to the stock market or the crypto coins and the crypto platforms, and I own both of those, real estate is probably the winner. With inflation coming in, you have to also remember that real estate is a good hedge against inflation. And so keeping those factors in mind, Real estate isn't a bad investment, except if you need mortgage and the mortgage is at 5%, it's a little bit of a problem. So in that context, I, I would say that investing in real estate isn't about timing, uh, like I said before. <clears throat> I feel like this is a good time. We, in fact, did a webinar a few weeks ago where we had an expert from Veritas Research talking about interest rates and the potential impact on real estate going down. But it's not going down to zero. It's a house. At the end of the day, it has a house and a land under it. It will not go down to zero, unlike a lot of other investment sectors. It will hold a certain amount of value, and over time, it will go up if the macroeconomic Demand supply shortage remains. So is it a safer bet in terms of investing? Even now, it is. Doesn't mean that you don't factor in interest rate hikes. And in that webinar, one of the questions was, are you getting ready to buy the dip in the real estate? Um, Are you looking to wait on the sidelines given the interest rates? And 80% of the people, surprisingly, chose I'm getting ready to buy the dip in real estate, uh, which was a very interesting take. As far as the relevance of fractional investing is concerned, um, fractional investing means you can actually invest in real estate anytime. You can wake up every morning and put a hundred bucks, which means that you no longer have to try and time the market and say, okay, today looks like a good day. Let me go rush and put a million dollars there. Mm. Instead, you are spreading that risk of market volatility, which no matter how much prediction people do, not all predictions come true, we all know that. If everybody knew the answer, they would have solved for it. And so fractional investing, I guess the time is every day, every morning and um, as frequently as you can on a more regular basis, it's almost like a habit of investing Putting aside $2,500 a month every month is a better way of investing than saving up $300,000 and making one large purchase. And then you have to time it because if you're putting in $300K in one go, you better get it right.
1: properties is by properly investing in are they is it a diversity of houses condominiums you know land how do you choose the types of properties that you invest in how do you choose the markets that you're investing in as well because Toronto is very different from Montreal and Vancouver and in Calgary Um, so how do you how do you navigate that
0: I'll answer the last question first how we navigate data a lot of data lots and lots and lots of data we use the data to boil the ocean, shortlist stuff, and then of course we layer it with physical inspection and actual checks and, in market checks and market due diligence, other layers of due diligence. But the first place is, lots and lots of data and boiling the ocean of data to say what should we look at, and get us a shortlist, in terms of what kind of assets we bring in. If you are a true real estate investor. And if you look at how a Yale endowment or a Penn or a Harvard fund invests, you would notice that they they don't invest all in houses and they don't invest all in offices. They diversify. So not only are they diversifying in the different types of assets they invest, they will change the diversification based on how the stock market does. So an office space, for example, is really correlated to how the rest of the economy is doing. If the economy is down, likely office spaces are down too, which means if you want to diversify away from stocks, you don't do offices. Or if you want to be in line with our stocks, then you do offices. And so when we do our deals, we will try and give people the option to build that portfolio such that uh, it's more diversified and therefore lower risk or as, I'm sure that people from the finance world, the risk adjusted return is a little more stable. So, yes, high returns, low returns, but when you adjust for the risk alongside, it is a better portfolio overall.
1: And you mentioned, you know, fractional investing as a concept is not new, but applied in this way, it is a bit novel. Why did it take? up until now or you know, relatively recently for something like this to be acknowledged and addressed? Because real estate in general has operated in a relatively consistent way. So why now, and or why relatively now has it been addressed?
0: Yeah, I mean, operating in a relatively consistent way is not a good thing. <laughs> like if an industry is always been running the same way, it's not a great thing at all. The reason for now is, twofold one is regulations it's only in the last 10 years and if you talk about Canada only in the last maybe three four five years that the regulations have eased up to enable some of this to happen earlier it was like a clear no restricted couldn't be done you cannot sell to small investors sort of a thing now the regulations have opened up options for small investors to participate in alternate investments So that's one piece. And the second piece is, of course, technology. And as technology adoption increases, so technology helps make it more efficient, simple and cheaper. But now people expect the Amazon kind of range and ease of doing transactions from everyone. Not just amazon but mm. every business out there and they expect the netflix kind of customization where the offering is specific to their needs from everyone and so tech has helped a, shape those expectations from customers Be also allowed to do this in a sustainable unit economics way mm. which is why now you have people trying to say okay this was changed due long time and now we have the tools and the regulations that will allow us to do it, so let's do it.
1: Yeah, um, I want to change the, the switch the focus over to you a little bit. There's been really an, uh, uh, an interesting uptick in prop tech or property technology companies lately. What has been your experience, you know, growing your company in a space that is such a new and developing sector?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've been very fortunate as a prop tech startup to get attention from biggies like you guys, uh, which is awesome for us always. Um, But also a lot of awards that we have won in the last year or so. I think we've won 15 awards in 12 months kind of thing, which, which helps us. The problem with being innovative and disruptive is that the ecosystem doesn't necessarily move with you. So it's all awesome that we are doing something different in all the banks and financial institutions would love to work with us, except they have no idea how to work with us. Mm. So they're like, yeah, we would love to do these deals, but where do I put you? I don't have a box for you. Like when I choose in my drop downs, you can be this or this, and there's no (laughs) category for you. So that's where I think we sometimes run into trouble is like, unless the whole ecosystem changes and moves at the speed at which we do, our places have to adjust. And uh, so that's kind of one of the the good and the bad things. The good thing, however, is the industry does take notice. And so uh, from two years ago to now, people would want to work with us. And they acknowledge that the future of investing will be through an app, through, through a simplified manner, not the complex, stressful, intimidating manner. They would want to work with us, partner with us, even when they sometimes don't need us right now. So an asset manager that's raising 30000000 million doesn't need a platform to raise 500 k for him. I mean, they have a setup, but they would still work with us because they acknowledge that this is where the future investors are. This is where the future generation is. It's kind of like a little bit of headwind, a little bit of tailwind. We on our side obviously have discovered that we can't do this alone. So we can't disrupt such a, large industry by ourselves, and so now we increasingly partner with ecosystem players and say, hey, you don't have automation, why don't I give you some API? Here, here's a SaaS license, use our API, get automated, then we work together. Make sure that the our goal is to make it better for the end customers. So it could be through us, it could be through partnerships, it could be through helping the ecosystem, but net-net, if our customer wins, we would feel good.
1: What excites you most about the work that you're doing?
0: It's cool to be a disruptor and do something differently. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, for me and for my team, it's we are solving a whole host of really hard problems. And so every time we come up with a solution to say, aha, here's how we can solve this and it will be cheaper and it will be better. It is exciting because yeah, I guess solving hard problems is the exciting part of it, uh, especially when customers appreciate it. So we would get a random email, and I think uh, Katie who's in the audience, has met this person. We get a random email saying, I had never invested in real estate, never thought about it. And I'm so excited. This is my first real estate investment. Or um, I'm sitting towards my house for the next five years. I want to grow my money alongside. And I'm so excited that it's not sitting in the bank idle. That then is like an elation for us to say, oh, wow. Okay, whatever we did for the two years, it was annoying. We didn't get paid a lot. We didn't make tons of money. But somebody, whatever we set out to, seems like it's working. Somebody is happy about it. Yeah, That's probably the epitome of uh, joy for us.
1: I mean, and, and in being able to own real estate, even if it's a portion of it is so symbolic, especially yes. if it's your first time and that is the, your first time as, a, as an investor in the real estate and just getting your foot into the door as well.
0: Absolutely, and some of them have spent a lot of time educating themselves. So now they know how to evaluate a deal what to look for in a deal, what's a good deal, the numbers they should look at. And so when they are going to make their big purchase, especially for the younger investors, they know how to do it. They know when to say no and when to say yes, how to get the data. So they have become a lot more knowledgeable over time.
1: Yeah. What is the best advice that you've received as a founder along your journey? And similarly, what's the best advice that you would have to give based off of your experience in building an organization and leading in into i guess uncharted waters a little bit
0: the best advice i got as a founder was to assume that when you're starting a company you're enrolling yourself in like kindergarten and there's a long way to go and there's a lot to learn and make sure that you're constantly constantly learning I, in the last two years, I have done tons of courses on sales, marketing, social media, HR, blockchain, crypto investing, commercial. I have had to learn; it was a steep learning curve. But as a founder or anybody building an organization, one is knowing your functions, but two is also keeping up with just times because new new technology, new ideas are coming in all the time, and you don't want to miss out. Otherwise, I will just make build an organization of the past in future. Mm-hmm. So That was probably the best advice that I got. It took me some time to realize that I need to implement it like now, now. And I can't wait three years before I implement. Like you have to learn every day and it can't be a next quarter resolution or a next year. You do it now and every day. That was the thing. In building an organization, the one big thing that I have learned is the value of uh, diversity. Diversity of people leads to diversity of ideas. So in our team, we have our engineers who are saying, no, 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 marketing team, this doesn't make sense. They've never done marketing. But, like, no, 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 as a consumer, I can see this just is too jarring. You have to change this. And so uh, we've tried to build that culture to a great extent to learn to respect the various perspectives and views because when you are out to solve a hard problem, there's no one person that can do it. And it's best to use all of the brains in the room and everybody brings a different perspective based on their own life experiences and skills. And the second part of building an organization that is diverse is representation. So we often get in applications from, we get way more applications from women, Um, not trying to quote numbers here, but uh, we have more women investors. We have more women applicants for any role that we open, including data science roles, which are known to be not getting applications from women. It's because our C-suite is women. Mm. All three of us, the chief marketing officer, the chief operating officer, and the CEO are all women. And, And representation, matters so much. We get emails saying, hey, reaching out, I have this problem. I have a kid who has this problem. I can only work X hours. I'm writing to you, hoping you will read it. And maybe as a woman, you will give me a chance, but I can do A, B, and C. We interview is like fabulous, amazing It's like where were you? But yeah, the market doesn't value. And so because we have that representation, we are able to attract talent equally and we're able to attract investors equally, which is suddenly such a multiplier effect. So we have diverse customers, diverse investors, and now that's translating into a diverse range of partners. So from the ecosystem, we would have more immigrants. We would have more women-based businesses that would come to us. We suddenly have started almost having a multiplier effect on the whole diversity system which is something I had never realized just reading about diversity and all of that stuff, but I can see it in action now.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is so true in all the interviews that we do and the entrepreneurs that we speak with that uh, through line is really the ability to harness diversity, not just because it is a good thing to do, but to harness a diverse range of not just people and backgrounds, but also expertise and, and points of view in order to tackle today's toughest problems. And it just it makes sense, you know? So just to, to finish off here, we usually um finish off our, our podcast and our interviews by asking w- uh, about purpose and mission. So at the end of the day, what is your mission and your purpose?
0: With buy properly.
1: With buy properly but also in your personal life and how are they how are they correlated between the two?
0: I feel like I got into buy properly because I wanted to make something better and it was like an untrodden path so there was no path and so i decided to make one kind of a situation that applies to me in personal life and that applies to me in business to say let's pick up the hard problems that nobody wants to deal with the messy ones and throw a bunch of smart motivated people at it and you'll figure it out <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it is about making somebody's life better. Always. Whether it's in the form of end customers, like the most joy is from when we get a, a good email from a customer. Um, so it's it's always about having an impact. And yeah, I guess that's how you think is like how did you make somebody's life better?
1: Well said. Thank you so much, Kushpur. That was a really interesting interview. Thank you so much. Entrepreneurship is all about solving problems. It's why entrepreneurs are some of today's best problem solvers, Kushbu included. And the problem she's looking to solve is a big one. One that could have a major impact on how we access equity in the real estate industry and how institutions like banks and developers shape their businesses down the road. It's about opening doors and letting those who have traditionally been denied by the gatekeepers of the market, grow their own personal wealth by giving them agency and empowerment. Fractional ownership isn't a new model, as Kushbu states, but one that hasn't been applied to the world of real estate in a way that is accessible to the everyday person. In times like these, companies like Buy Properly, ones that are tackling old problems in fresh ways, are needed more than ever if we want things to change. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself,
0: what's your mission?